Audio conversation with Trish and Rob McGregor, recorded Monday, April 15th, 2013. This is my second interview with Trish and Rob. Uh, The first one was done a little over a year ago, and that was talking about their book, The Seven Secrets of Synchronicity. Now, this book that we'll be talking about here is titled Aliens in the Backyard. The subtitle is UFO Encounters, Abductions, and Synchronicity. I'm very intrigued and impressed that they put synchronicity right on the cover of a book about UFO abductions. Uh, If anyone has listened at all to what I've posted here on these podcasts uh, or read anything I've written, you will be very aware that I see a very strong correlation between the alien abduction phenomena and synchronicities. Now, uh, Trish and Rob are a husband and wife writing team. They have been at it for well over 25 years. Uh, They have a long, long list of books that they've worked on. They've also done uh, the sort of work-a-day role of reporter for for newspapers. And those skills show through in this book. I have to compliment it. It is very well written and very engaging. And then it's also not a very long book. It's only about 154 pages. And they actually managed to cram in a lot into this into this rather small book, uh, including things that seem to get ignored in other books, uh, things like the Bermuda Triangle, synchronicities, uh, psychic experiences. Uh, there's there's some references to the occult and how it ties into this overall phenomena. So uh, I have to compliment this little book for being uh, quite thorough, uh, in a way, for covering the stuff that I'm interested in. Uh, and I think you'll hear that in the in the audio interview. Now, if you want to hear a little bit more from uh, Trish and Rob, I have linked, uh, this is down in the show notes, I have linked another interview. This is with Alejandro Rojas. And I think that's a, quite a good interview. Uh, that'll give you a little bit more foundation on who they are. Uh, it feels like I jumped right past that and got right into the meat of this interview. Now, this is a long interview. It uh, It clocks in at just about one hour and 50 minutes, so almost two hours. I feel like there was a lot we I could have asked, but but I think they would have just been retelling things that uh, that showed up in the book. Now, I actually listened to the book on tape. I got it at, through audible.com. Uh, this isn't meant to be a plug, but I thought the person who read the book did a great job, really um, had a thoughtful, calm voice. And, and for myself, I just found that a very enjoyable way to uh, to drink in this book. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would suggest you also listen to the one I did previously uh, on their book, The Seven Secrets of Synchronicity. Uh, That was linked in the show notes. And um, uh, that previous book, as well as this book here, Aliens in the Backyard, both have uh, sort of, I almost want to say, a detective novel quality to them. You know, Rob and Trish don't, uh, don't hide their role in the writing process. They actually, in essence, play characters. And uh, they talk about how actually synchronicity played a very big role in the creation of, of this book and their previous book. And just like the interview uh, we did over a year ago, I had a great time in conversation with both Rob and Trish. Please enjoy. Hey, Rob and Trish, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Right now on my desk, uh, in my hand, I'm holding the book, uh, Aliens in the Backyard, and you are both uh, listed as authors. And then the subtitle is UFOs, Abductions, and Synchronicity. Uh, The one question I want to ask is why did you include the term synchronicity right there on the cover? 
probably one of the reasons is we wouldn't have done the book without synchronicity. Synchronicity came into play right from the very start because uh, we've always been interested in the idea of doing a, a book on UFOs, but it's such a vast field and there's so much knowledge, so many different directions, we could never really figure out what approach to take. But uh, then one day we got an email, an interesting email from a man we call Charles Fontaine. And uh, Charles began to unravel his story over a number of weeks to us. And the reason Charles contacted us was a synchronicity. He had an experience in March, late, I think it was March 28th, 2011. And after that, his life became very chaotic. His whole sense of reality broke down and he was in a very traumatic situation often, oftentimes and just breaking down in tears right in the office. His whole world was falling apart, it seemed. But then synchronicity started happening over and over to him. And he, uh, it just complicated the matter for him, really, until one day he had a desire to go into a bookstore in Montreal. Uh, he lives in Quebec, in rural Quebec, works in Montreal in the aeronautic, aeronautical industry, went into a bookstore, which is unusual for him because he his work involves reading all day long, and so he doesn't really feel like going home and reading books. So he doesn't buy books, doesn't go to bookstores, but he had an urge to go into this bookstore. The only book he picked up was The Seven Secrets of Synchronicity, which happened to be our book on synchronicity. He bought that book and went home, started reading, and uh, read for a while, and then Googled the term synchronicity and UFOs. And a blog came up with a, an illustration of a UFO. Sort of a hovering UFO. A hovering UFO with these beams of light coming down. And that was very similar to what he saw in his backyard. So he was uh, amazed that, uh, that he went right to something that was very similar to what he saw. Then he looked at the blog, realized that it was our blog, the, the <laughs> blog, the people who wrote the book he was reading. So... Uh, that, so that's a huge synchro. <laughs> that, that startled him, and so he knew he had a contact, and, and that was the turning point for us. So when he contacted us, we realized that synchronicity was involved in this, and then we started making other contacts and realizing that synchronicity played played a role in a lot of uh, UFO experiences and the aftermath as well. So had you been planning on writing a book on, on uh, UFOs at that point when you received that first email from Charles? No. <laughs> no, we, we had talked about it. Uh, for years. For, for we years talked about we it. talked about it. And we always thought that we would write a book on UFOs, but we never really could find our way into the, into the, the story. The hook. Oh, that makes, I mean, that's, it's very, it's, it's a problematic subject as, as far as being an author, because on one level, there's a, there's a, lot of books out there and a right. lot of them are good a lot of them are really but, good and and then and then but every single one of them is completely divergent uh you know that there's the topic is like a bottomless pit right and we didn't want to rehash you know the whole history of ufos or anything i mean because other people have done that and they've done it well but for us the synchronicity really proved to be the glue for this story yeah and we have had a blog for over three years now and on on synchronicity but UFO stories have kept 
creeping into the blog and with uh, uh, with links to synchronicity. So that was a key part uh, that even in the background, we were thinking about it, but it hadn't really formulated until uh, Charles Fontaine came our way. And he, he really provided the emotional way into the story. I mean, these are, these are, these encounters are things that affect, they don't just impact people's lives. They destroy them. <laughs> they sculpt them. They, you know, it's just, it, it then be, your whole, your whole worldview is turned inside out. His story is actually only a small part of the book It's involved in two chapters of 12. However, it, uh, it was a turning point for us and it gave us the theme yeah, and that was I, I sort of see that that story as uh, you know kind of the framework of the of the entire right. book where you know that one story you follow that that uh, his experiences, which interestingly are not um, you know it doesn't stretch over decades and decades like some no. abductees do. No, it's not that. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Uh, major Although thing. it might for his wife. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, his wife has uh, may have had. Other experience. She definitely had another experience about two weeks earlier, where she was uh, driving home through the dark uh, back uh, roads when uh, she saw this very similar lights, and uh, she stopped her car, and she saw this field across the road from her that, that was covered with deer that were just laying down, uh, and then the next thing she knows, she's not in the car anymore, and she's standing next to the car uh, and wondering how she got there. So she had some kind of experience, and she went home and told him about it. But uh, Charles was watching television or something, and just kind of nodded. He didn't, he didn't pay much attention. He thought she was talking about deer running across the the road, uh, getting in her way that she was always talking about and being afraid of while driving. So uh, he was kind of surprised when she mentioned in the aftermath of the experience that, that they both had that early that morning, end of March. Yeah. Now, uh, the, going back, uh, I guess it would have been last year sometime, um, the Charles Fontaine story ended up being uh, nine separate posts on your right. site. And um, and what I did is, with your permission, I ganged those all up. I cut and pasted them and and then posted them in uh, in one downloadable PDF that has you know his story that you can read from beginning to end the way it was written in your nine posts and um and I did that on purpose because I just thought it was such a powerful story I mean it exactly what you said on an emotional level it was very powerful it wasn't the story of little lights in the sky and and, no. and you know that was very short actually uh it lasted only a few minutes and but it had enormous impact on him as right. an individual and especially since not only what he saw but then finding himself in the shower and not knowing how he got there and wondering what happened because uh, everything went just blank on him when the, the UFO that came in the backyard <clears throat> verti- moving vertically, uh, this uh, beam, uh, this rotating beam of lights uh, he was watching, then he could see the, the shape of the craft around the, around the rotating lights and then he turned to pick up his uh, dog to get back in the house, and the dog was covered with a gold light, and that was the last thing he remembered until suddenly he's taking a shower. So it's the missing time, except that time was actually compressed because he still got to work on time. Yeah, there wasn't any uh, va- you know, missing two hours or anything. 
and it actually seemed like uh, the, as Trish said, the, the time was compressed. Whatever happened in that, in that uh, period of time was uh, compressed. So it, it uh, seemed as if no time had taken. Uh, or maybe place. you're taking it out of linear time. That's, a, that's what I've wondered. This is very mysterious. Yeah, there is, you know, there's what has happened. And uh, there's a researcher named Joe Montaldo out of uh, New Orleans who's been researching this is what is being reported now is is less the missing time phenomena that was so prevalent in the 90s and more this kind of odd distorted or right. looped or gained time and and uh you know some of the stories are so bizarre when you when you like I don't think we actually we actually have the capability you know we're trapped in this linear timeline you know you and you and I are you know we're sort of on the arrow of time and we're just moving in this one direction and you can watch it happening on the, you know, on the second hand of a clock. And then something is taking place that, that they, the UFO occupants somehow have a mastery of where, mm-hmm. where it just messes with that in a way that, that leaves me um, completely perplexed. So what you're describing is interesting because you're describing a, a case that happened. This happened in 2011. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so quite recently, and that is, you know, in and more the recent stories seem to have this compressed or looped time. Um yeah. So I mean I've talked to some people who've had very, very strange experiences with this looped time phenomena where they'll have uh like the memory of the same thing happening over and over and over again. And it doesn't, you know, in it in it it doesn't make any logical sense at all. It seems you think like it's a screen memory. Oh, there was a so there's a story. This uh, I, I'm going to choose not to use his name. I, he's been very open with it. But um, there was a fellow who's had a lot of abduction experiences. He was with a, a girl that he was dating at the time, and they kind of went out to the woods, you know, to basically to you know smooch under the stars, and you know, uh, she pointed up at the sky, and she said, "Oh, that's the Big Dipper." And and he said, oh, no, no, that's the Little Dipper. See, there's the Big Dipper there. Hmm. And then a few minutes went by, and then she pointed up at the sky and said, oh, look, there's the Big Dipper. And he said, oh, no, no, that's the Little Dipper. The Big Dipper's there. Oh, really? Jeez. And then And then it happened like three times. And it was – and he basically said it was like a, a like a little glitch in the tape loop. You know, it was kind of like, you know, when your VCR gets stuck and just kind of like, right. you know, yeah. plays the same scene <laughs> over and over It sounds like a little glitch in the Matrix to me. Exactly. So what, but it was, it had a time element to it for some reason. So, and mm. then there, and later that's that ins in, and then the, the follow-up was um, the next thing they know there's, they're standing there and then there's a series of gray aliens standing next to them and he's getting the telepathic message of, no, no, I don't think she's right for you. <laughs> oh, so, really? Yeah. Uh, I, I might be telling that a little bit incorrectly, but I think that's pretty close. Um uh. So, so um, I want to, at some point we'll come back to the Charles Fontaine story because I think that's fascinating and there's, it's a rich, I mean, we could do a whole two hours on that story alone. Um, but it seems like, now I don't want to um, say that the book wrote itself because obviously there's a lot of hard work involved in the book, but my sense is that, um, you know, you didn't go out to do the research. It felt like the research sort of arrived at your doorstep. That's, that's how the best books are written. <laughs> And the blog was a big help, too, yeah. because uh, we we received uh, most of the stories through the blog. There was uh, one 
exception, Bruce Gernon, the uh, story of the, the Bermuda Triangle story, he is somebody who uh, contacted me years ago and it, uh, because he, he read an article about me in the West Palm Beach Post that I was a writer and I can't remember what the article was about. He, he wanted to tell his story about what happened to him in the Bermuda Triangle. And it turns out he only lives about a mile from us. <laughs> so we've known him for years, wrote the book called The Fog and uh, used some of that material, rewrote some of that material for this and updated this uh, the material for this book because now he, when we wrote The Fog, he was not too high on talking about UFOs. He didn't want, like a lot of people, doesn't want to appear as a UFO nut and be just dismissed as an idiot. Uh, but we did put in a chapter of his, about his UFO experiences because the guy's had about 20 interesting experiences and has even predicted the appearances of UFOs and uh, been with people and who have seen them on a couple of occasions. This has happened uh, for him. And, and now he's beginning to think that maybe, you know, this lenticular cloud he went through actually was... Was a UFO was that a was UFO. surrounded by a cloud. This is fascinating. So, so the, he's one of the very few witnesses to like the, the strange Bermuda Triangle anomalies. You know, he has a story about flying a plane and then there's distorted time and he ends up at a different spot. Uh, and weightlessness, wasn't that part of it too? Yeah, actually, yeah weightlessness. And yeah. moving like instantly 100 miles from near Bimini to Miami Beach. Uh, not instantly, well, it would have, he would have had been traveling like... Uh, 2,000 miles uh, or something. Yeah, tw- I think it was 1,200 miles an hour and the plane was about tough out at a 185 miles an hour so it was quite an impossible experience and there were three people in there and they all had uh watches and they were uh had the had checked on the the time before they uh as they took off and so they they had accurate timing on the experience and it's just very strange and the cloud actually uh scary situation the cloud actually chased them and uh, they were going 185 miles an hour and the cloud was catching up to them and actually overtook them at one point. They would bump out of it and they would capture them again and they'd jump out of it. And finally they got away from it. They thought they were safe. And then they saw in a, another cloud exactly like it in front of them and also shooting out two arms on either side. So, so essentially it was two clouds, one behind, one in front, shooting out arms that were connecting with each other. He tried to go up above it and he realized that cloud must have gone up to 60,000 feet. He went all the way down, tried to go underneath it. And he realized it was coming right out of the ocean. So they were trapped inside this big donut hole. And they just happened to see a tunnel where two of the arms were closing together and they decided they would try to get through that tunnel. And they, they went for it. You could see blue sky on the other side. He went into the tunnel and inside, the, the clouds were rotating counterclockwise and shrinking, the tunnel was shrinking down by the time we got to the outside of it. It was coming right on the tips of the wings. We got on the outside, there was no blue sky at all. Instead, it was this fog and uh, weightlessness and all the electronic equipment was scrambled. Uh, two compasses uh, were spinning in circles. Uh, nothing was working. Uh, finally, they got contact with the Miami Tower, and the Miami Tower said they couldn't see them. They couldn't see any planes out from Bimini to Miami Beach. And 
So his father was just freaking out at this point, uh, saying, what do you mean that we have the top uh, equipment on this plane? This is a new plane. There's no reason that you can't see us out here. And then there was radio uh, uh, silence again for a couple of minutes. And then the power came back on and said, there's a plane right over Miami Beach now. And Bruce said, no, that couldn't be. We're, we're just coming into Bimini. Uh, and then he looked down, the clouds break up, and there's Miami Beach underneath them, <laughs> totally perplexed by what happened. And see, that happened to Bruce in 1970. So this, this whole experience has really defined most of his adult life. And he didn't even know what the Bermuda Triangle was because there, uh, Charles Berlitz's book wouldn't come out for three or four years. And uh, he just one evening, about three, four years later, in the Dick Cavett show, there was an interview. And there was, uh, I can't remember who it was that was being interviewed, but uh, he was explaining the Bermuda Triangle phenomena. And Bruce suddenly knew that's what happened to me. I've been through the whole experience. And so he knew he had to, I know who it was. It was um, Valentin. Yeah, Manson Valentin, who is uh, director of the Miami Science Institute at the time. And uh, he knew he had to contact him. And a week later, Valentin called him and they had a, uh, he went down to meet him. And Bruce told him his entire story. And Valentin did something very odd. He just kind of, his head dropped down. And it was like he went into trance. He didn't say anything. And Bruce, his <clears> wife <throat> told Bruce to keep talking. And that's just the way he was uh, processing. processing the information. And then he lifted his head up at the end and said, you hold the secret to the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> well, that's fast. I mean, not all, I mean the, the fact that he has also seen so many UFOs. Now, I've interacted with a lot of researchers and abduction researchers. and if someone tells the story of seeing more than one UFO in their life, you know, uh, especially something yeah. close up, the the abduction researcher will sort of smile knowingly and you can just see the wheels turning in their head and they are, um, you know, they're basically coming to the conclusion that this person is quite probably an abductee themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we think about Bruce. Yeah, I don't he, think Bruce is ready to go there. No, yet. he doesn't. He Never wanted to be hypnotized. I suggested that one time. And uh, he doesn't want, like to think of himself as an abductee. But one month after that experience, he flew out for, from Miami Beach with his girlfriend. It was at night. She had never been on a small airplane at night. And he wanted to show her the city lights and the stars. He flew over Miami, Miami Beach and out into the ocean, over the ocean. And he realized that he was coming right to the point where he had come out of that cloud, that tunnel. And when he was there, he noticed a, an orange star in the distance and he pointed it out to his girlfriend. She looked at it and they saw it was getting bigger, bigger. It was coming their way. It wasn't a star at all. It was some kind of vessel and it kept coming right at them. And then it, uh, uh, it, he could see it as a metallic craft uh, disc shaped with a dome top and it looked like it was going to collide with them. He maneuvered the plane as best he could, but he knew there was no way he could avoid it. And, and, and right at the point of impact, it vanished like that. Uh, and whether it went up, down or disappeared, uh, he doesn't know, but, uh, but, uh, we later on, we did, uh, 
worked a bit with uh, a, a former government remote viewer, Joe McMoneagle. Yes, who, who, I've, who I've met uh, very briefly. Army, yeah. Ar- yeah, Army and CIA. You know who Joe is? Oh, yes. Yeah, he, so uh, we gave the, put the in, information about Bruce's experience into an envelope and just put numbers on the envelope. That's all he wanted. He said, don't tell me anything about this. His wife chose the number. Right, his wife chose the numbers. And so he gives the uh, ex- explanation. He, he describes the craft and uh, in, in detail, just as Bruce had done. But then what Bruce didn't do, he said the, the craft captured the airplane and they were abducted. <laughs> so that... that Pretty startling, and Bruce still doesn't want to believe that. But that's what he was told through the through, Joe. uh, through Joe's remote viewing of the of the experience. Wow! Now, so some researchers and some authors would try to keep a uh, very uh, balanced perspective, and they would not go to to a remote viewer to look up this kind of thing. They, you know, this, so that's one of the things I want to compliment you about in your in your book. You're you're depending on synchronicities. You're you're looking for clues through remote viewers, as well as um, there's a story of a uh, psychometrist. That's yeah. the, that's the woman who looked at the small bottle of uh, holy the water. Of, of holy, holy water. water. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we take different uh, perspectives. I on... mean, but Mike, you have to look at this whole thing. I mean, UFOs, encounters, abductions. These are not things you can study in. You, you have to use different tools. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, so I think that synchronicity is an often overlooked facet of encounters, you know, and why not take a vial of holy water to a psychometrist just to see what she can pick up, you know? Exactly. Oh, I I agree. I mean, I'm in my own self-research, I'm going to psychics and channelers and, you know, and uh, I'm trying to document all the synchronicities that happen in my life. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm in complete agreement. You're, you are, you are, you know, you and I are talking the same language here. And that's right. part of the reason I enjoyed the book so much. And one of the things that she picked up about that experience was uh, why did Chris uh, asked uh, the question when it came out what this whole thing was about, uh, about the vial of holy water and why he was carrying that around. Uh, she asked the question, why, why, was, why, why did they do it? Why did they abduct them? And she had an unusual answer. She said, entertainment. <laughs> That's what you do on a Saturday night, flying around <laughs> a spaceship. <laughs> Just, yeah, there's one. Let's grab them. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. I, I, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And no. that doesn't, you know, and I mean, the, the, the psychic may be, uh, you know, filtering it and, and having to put uh, you know what does entertainment mean when it comes through the mind of a psychic? When it's when the the source is potentially this alien mind itself that we that we may not be able to to relate to in the slightest. So um, you know that's oftentimes I I've think, yeah, oh, go what on. I think she was referring to is that there was no you know bigger cosmic picture for him. That this was maybe a spur of the moment thing. He was the right person in the right place at the right time, or rather, from his point of view, the wrong person at the wrong time. But it was also a trickster element involved mm-hmm. too, because what happened to him, his whole world view was changed instantaneously after that, uh, and he was never quite the same. And uh, that's the uh, the trickster element of. Uh, you know, 
showing you something that you don't believe because he uh, and just throw, throwing him in uh, is in a mental uh, chaos, <laughs> uh, in a, yeah, quandary chaos. Um, it, it was just something that uh, was was done in such a way that uh, it uh, just uh, left him left him at a loss. Now, I'm assuming you're still in contact with Charles. Yes. Mm-hmm. And has there been any, like recently, I mean, now we're getting on two years since the event, which is quite recent given the 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 content of the book. You know, very rarely do you have a UFO book that is based on an event that, that only happened two years ago. Right. Um, right. You know, yeah. usually you're talking about things that was a decade ago. And, and um, so, so like, it's almost like you're getting raw data as opposed to someone retelling a story that they've, mm-hmm. that they've, you know, been festering in their, in their head for a decade. Um, now in like the short term, I mean, in a recent interactions with him and I, and I can't really remember if this was in the book or not, has there been any, uh, like changes to Charles like worldview? Has it changed his, his idea of spirituality or how he relates to, um, you know, I mean, just to, one thing that shows up uh, over and over again, it's not, it's not, uh, universal it's not 100 percent consistent but you know people who have these experiences will often say that they became a very vegetarian yeah yeah but well, in charles case he he came into this not believing in ufos at all uh he thought it was something that was on television and movies and that if there was such a thing as alien crafts visiting us well the u.s government and military <laughs> would have told us about it long ago and uh, that, that basically was his naive point of view. And uh, so this changed everything for him. And what, what happened with him is that he became a researcher in a sense himself because he's been investigating and reading and researching everything he can about UFOs ever since, watching videos. And do, for him, it's more or less find out I'm not the only one that right. has experienced this because he felt for a long time he could not talk to anybody. He had this experience that was driving him crazy, but he could not talk to anybody about it except his wife because he uh, was very frightened of uh, the repercussions that uh, losing his job, losing or- his job, and uh, you know that just uh, his being being looked at as a as a UFO and not uh, a strange person, and he didn't want that. So. He's uh, he's found some sense of uh, stability by pursuing it a little deeper. Although he, he still seems occasionally, he still seems somewhat depressed about the whole situation that of what's happened to him because he's uh, he just doesn't um, see much future in his life. Uh, because of this experience. I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, he just uh, is, I, I guess he's just chronically depressed from it. And and now just coming from my own first person experiences, you know, like I, I've had my own uh, life events that, uh, that I've only quite recently, I mean, I'm 50 years old. Actually, I think I'm born the same years as, as Charles, which is interesting. I, I looked that up. Um, so we're both, I think we're both 50 or you know, within a year or so of each other. And, uh, I also have a history of depression in my life and it, and, and, uh, and then I also have these experiences in my life. Uh, 
so and and i having talked to a lot of people that these those go hand in hand you know once again it's not it's not 100 percent, but um right. it is it is not uncommon i mean in the 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 way it's framed oh i have an interview with bud hopkins taped um where where he'll talk about uh the the reaction to trauma would mm-hmm. be you know this this is a normal anyone who's who's been involved with trauma um you know will have some sort of reaction and a and a very normal textbook reaction is to have uh emotional changes you know becoming more depressed becoming more reclusive becoming more obsessive and it's interesting that he's i'm i'm not sure if he's obsessive about researching the phenomena but just the fact that he's it sounds like he's he's taken it very seriously obviously well, some people may be able to experience something like this and just say, okay, I'm not going to think about it. Oh, yeah, that denial. And that, that defines yeah. me up until about six years ago. Well, I read your, your blog post about how you came out basically as an abductee. That was fascinating. It was fascinating. And what it was, and it's interesting because what it was, it wasn't the actual event. There was an event that took place March 10th. It wasn't the right, event the connecting itself. the lines, right? Yeah, this lines on the map. Should I tell that story right now? Yeah, yeah tell it. This yeah, I don't know if, if, if uh, so I'll try to make this quick. I'm going to do another interview shortly where I'm going to just focus on that, uh, mm-hmm. that story alone. So this would have been coming back from a UFO conference on March 10th. So just a little bit over a month ago. I live in Idaho and the conference t- took place in Phoenix, Arizona. I was driving north. I visited some friends, people I haven't seen in a while, and it was nice to be down in the desert after being up in the winter of Idaho. So it was sun was going to be setting, and I was uh, what I do, and I've lived out west a long time, and I teach camping, so it's very normal for me to uh, you know the big wide open spaces we have here and the little dusty roads that um, that are very very rural and very quiet. Uh, you can just pull off on the side of the road and lay down under the stars. I, I very rarely get a hotel room when I'm traveling, so I'll just sleep out under the stars and and I love it. Uh, uh, and I do it all the time. And I, when I camp, I'll try to sleep out under the stars. Really, uh, almost spiritual thing for me. Um, so uh, this would have been just at sunset, which probably would have been about getting fully dark. Would have been getting about eight thirty, nine o'clock. And I was uh, in southern Utah. Now that it was dark, I was tired. I didn't have the energy to try to drive in the nighttime. So I pulled off to the side of the road, laid out my sleeping pad. And uh, it was a perfect spot. You know, it was bushes. I was well off the side of the road. I mean, I think it was Highway 20 is the name of it in southern Utah. And um, quiet, beautiful, perfect spot. Um, I just, you know, laid down right next to the car and uh, went to sleep. It was probably about 9, 9.30 when I, when I actually drifted off to sleep. Now, I woke up in the middle of the night and looked up on a hilltop. And in this is, I was completely peaceful. The stars were spectacular. It was cold. I had a great big thick sleeping bag. So it was super cozy in there. And I looked up on this hillside and I did an illustration of it, but there was a, oh, what I just referred to as a round structure. It looked like, you know what it looked like? Did you ever see the movie Sleeper with Woody Allen? Oh yeah. There's a funny house that, that has a round shape to it. That's on a hillside. And and that's one of the, the locations that they shoot, this modern, you know, funny round house that's that's sort of perched up on the ridgeline of a hill. Um, you know, it reminded me of that. It seemed like it was probably bigger than the than the house appeared in the in the movie Sleeper. But it was round and it had lights along the edges of it. And it was just setting there. And I even in the moment, I said, Well, that's a very interesting place to see a house. You know, I was wasn't fully awake. I was just in that sort of peaceful, you know, just 
waking, looking at the beautiful stars. So I looked at this thing and I even said to myself, if this is a UFO, I would know because I would feel, I would sense it. You know, I would sense something unusual. And I looked at it and I just kind of, you know, in this very relaxed way, just monitored my own self-awareness and like, nope, I'm not stressed out at all. So that happened, I think, three times during the night. I woke up three different times and looked up and saw this round structure and and just, you know, said, huh, still there? Okay. And um, at about four in the morning, I woke up, you know, I had gone to bed early and I needed to do a long drive. So about four in the morning, I woke up and felt refreshed. So I tossed everything in the back of the car and started driving while it was still dark. Now, when I got home, now this is unusual. When I got home, one of the things I did was looked up on Google Maps to see if there was a a structure there, right? So, I mean, if there was a building, if it was a building as big as it seemed to be, there would have to be a road going up to it and nothing. Like, I'm very, very skilled with maps, and I knew exactly where I was sleeping, and I knew exactly the ridgeline, and nothing, mm. nothing there. So that kind of made my heart sink. So I, <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, so I drew a, so I did a blog post about it, and I posted, this is kind of the headspace I'm in right now where I'm, I just made like a, a decision to post all of this stuff. Uh, you know, so that went up. I literally gave the GPS location of everything I could, you know, the right. spot where I was sleeping, this probable location of the round structure. Uh, like later on in that same day, I had what I can only call a psychic knowing where I said to myself, uh, well, actually, it wasn't that I said to myself, like all of a sudden I psychically knew this was the same day after I had posted the blog post online, you know, where I did the illustration of the round structure. I knew like at a gut level, if I connected three lines on a, or three dots on a map, they would all line up in a straight line. And one of the dots would be the location of the March 10th event. Hmm. So I sat down, I'm, I, you know, there's a map program on Google Maps where you can put little lines and measure distances and put little thumbtacks in. So I located the one spot uh, from March 10th. And then there were several other spots from, uh, there was a previous event in May of 2010 that took place in Western Colorado, Southwestern Colorado in a little town of Dolores. And that was a very scary event when I was with a woman named Natasha. I won't go into the details of that, but that was basically plays out like an abduction experience in a tent. Uh, we both felt profound fear. I woke up the next morning with a weird scratch. I remember being floated out of the tent, uh, like basically through the roof of the tent. So anyway, so it was all the telltale signs of, except no UFO and no memory of, of actually being on a craft. I did remember being in a white realm. So that, that happened to me in May of 2010. And did then feel like you were awake or sleeping, dreaming. Uh, you know, it is very tough to say. We were definitely awake when we had this, this terrifying experience. And then, uh, you know, that lasted for maybe 10 minutes. We both woke up out of a sound sleep screaming. Both of us just woke up wow. screaming. Yeah. And, wow. and the only way I can describe the fear we were experiencing is synthetic fear. That's, mm-hmm. that's a term that I've shared with other people who've had these experiences, and they nod kind of knowingly, like, oh, that's a good way to describe it. It felt artificial. It felt like, like fear that didn't have any... Like I can't, I mean, I sleep in a tent all the time. It's very normal for me. Um, If a grizzly bear had ripped through the side of the tent and put its jaws around my throat, (laughs) I don't think I would have been as scared as I was that, that moment out of, for nothing, uh, that nothing that we could perceive. So we were scared for maybe 10 minutes and then poof, I'm going to snap my fingers. We were both asleep. And then the next thing I knew, I felt like I was floating out of the tent. There's more to the story, uh, 
but it would to tell it properly would take an hour. So I won't do that now, but, and then, so, so, so now I have a, a line on the map, right? And I've got two points, nice straight line. And then I went to this other spot on the map and then put a, like a marker on the, using the map program. Mm-hmm. And that was a location right along the Burr Trail Road, which is kind of a famous dirt road that goes through the, some of the wilderness areas of Southern Utah. And um, Natasha and I slept out there while on a road trip while driving back from the UFO conference. And that would have been in 2011. So I think that would have been in early March, 2011. Mm. Um, Beautiful night. She had been, she had come from Germany. You know, she had not gotten used to our time. She was still jet lagged and didn't have the sleep cycle, didn't match. So she kind of woke up in the middle of the night and she kind of said like, I'm, I, I can't go to sleep. I'm antsy. And I said, take a walk, walk around. It was, we were on this beautiful spot. It was, you know, you could see for miles in every direction and, you know, millions of stars and completely, you know, desolate, empty area. So she walked around and then she got to a spot and she saw a little orb floating. And she walked up to this orb and it flashed. It went poof. It like, you know, lit up like a, like an old time photographer's flashbulb. And then she came back to me and said, uh, I just saw this orb. We got to get out of here. And I went, okay. And uh, now, now this, this is uh, one interesting detail here. When I was laying there waiting for her to come back from this walk, I was listening to a great horned owl hooting. So mm. I have all these owl synchronicities. And so I was laying there listening to an owl, you know, at the same time she was seeing this orb, you know, so there's this odd little mystical element to the story. So that line in the map, these line up exactly in a straight line. I know where exactly where all three events took place. You know, you can zoom in using a map program and get like one, you know, get that line one pixel thick. And, and I mean, it seems like it lands to the millimeter on all three of these sites. Mm. This line is 231 miles long. Wow. Yes. So, so the probability is, is, it just doesn't exist that, that I, that these three events could line up like that. Now you can read the blog post I created and you can hear it in my voice, you know, like, well, you know, this is interesting, but I'm not sure what it means. And, and, uh, and that about the one seeing the round structure, but I have to say that this map thing was a confirmation for me in a way that I've never really had. And I just, I just couldn't, deny anymore these elusive experiences and and it and i just had to just come out and say i do avoid the term ufo abductee Mm -hmm. and i kind of dance around it and i think i say that um in the in the post where where i basically declare myself an experiencer i think i say that i am someone who's intertwined with the ufo reality Mm -hmm. um yeah Yeah, that's fascinating your your uh experience in the where you both woke up and sat up at the same time screaming reminded me of an experience that Trish and I had in the Dominican Republic, except we weren't weren't terrorized. We weren't fearful at all. It was a a different kind of energy. Different kind of energy. We were sleeping. We had gone to sleep uh, about 10.30 or so and about 11 o'clock. Oh, no, just let me interrupt. Were you in a hotel room or were you in a tent? Yeah, we were. We no, were, it was like an apartment. Yeah, okay. we were in a, like an, a, a, a two-room apartment. Uh, it, uh, it was a it was like a resort uh, situation that on on the near the beach, and on the beach. Uh, yeah, on the <laughs> beach, we could look right out our uh, front porch to the water. Uh, but on the side where the entrance was, there was a graveyard. I mean, <laughs> the, the the center patio of the hotel the center square was an actual graveyard and that's all tied in with the story. Yeah. 
So we were, uh, in fact, we had moved to that, uh, that apartment from another one where we looked right out the <laughs> front porch onto the graveyard and our daughter, who was about 10 or 11 years old, was just freaked out by that every looking in, uh, out on a graveyard. She thought we, she said, well, we were going to be on the beach. What are we doing on this cemetery? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we moved, but actually the door to the apart- apartment, the new place was actually closer to the, <laughs> to the cemetery. Uh, but the, the, the front looked out to the, to the, to the beach. Anyhow. So we, uh, we uh, heard this booming sound, like something crashing into the side like of a the wrecking building, ball. like a wrecking ball. Boom, boom, boom. Three times. Silence. Then boom, boom, boom. It happened. I don't know how many times it happened. I was laying there thinking about the, hearing this and thinking, what am I, am I dreaming this? And, but the, the whole building seemed to be shaking. And finally, I just sat up and Trish sat up exactly simultaneously. And at that point, it just went silent and we never heard it again. And, but we both felt very energized. Oh, and the other end of the of this apartment, the television was suddenly on too, mm. which we had, <laughs> we didn't have the television on that evening. <laughs> but what had happened, Mike, was we had gone into this graveyard to look at one of the graves, which was a windsurfing board. And the kid, it was a young kid who was buried there, like 23, 24 years old. And Rob picked up something from the graveyard and we think- Stone. That, yeah, stone. And we think that that may have had some connection to this booming thing, whatever you, it was. Did you put and the so stone the next back? next day we returned the stone. Oh, to good. The okay, good, good. Yeah, we had uh, been interested in that graveyard. And we had, one day we saw the gate was open. So we walked into the graveyard and we saw, uh, we thought this was an old graveyard, an ancient graveyard. But there, the, the first one, the, this grave, uh, which had a headstone of, a, of half of a, a windsurfer, uh, was right in front of our uh, porch, like only about 20, 15, 20 feet away on the other side of the fence. And so we were looking at that and we realized this kid was buried just four months earlier. And then this old man walks up to us and he's the grave digger. And he says, come on, in Spanish, uh, says uh, he's digging a grave. And he, uh, he says, I, I found another uh, coffin below this. He said, there's another graveyard below this graveyard because the way the the sand, uh, the way the environment works is rather than losing sand, this beach gains sand. So the uh, the graveyard keeps growing uh, upwards. Upwards, uh, and so there's at least two two graveyards, one on top of another. And he was excited about seeing this other uh, coffin, but we we decided we weren't going to do that, <laughs> and uh, we just left at that time. But I did pick up that stone. And so we had some kind of link with this graveyard and that then had this, this experience. Uh, and uh, the next day I asked the guy at the desk, I said, was there an earthquake last night? And he said, no, no, nothing that we know of. And I said, well, is your facility haunted? And he said, oh, the ghost is friendly. <laughs> that was the end of it, you know. And, you know, one of the things we've often wondered about is, is there a link between the spirit world and UFOs? Uh, that's uh, something that has intrigued us because uh, as uh, Whitley Strieber mentioned to us one time when we talked with him that the uh, he's had experiences where, or at least one, where he was 
with the the visitors and there was a friend of his who was dead and he's talked to other people who have had that same experience seeing dead people now uh so one version of what that could mean would be that there's this link between the dead and the and the visitors another version of what it could be <clears throat> would be that these visitors uh aliens whatever you want to call them materialized as a friend or shape-shifted one of them shape-shifted into this deceased friend so the one who is undergoing the abduction would feel more comfortable because there was a friend even though he is dead <laughs> uh so as that would be like a um uh what would you call that a cover uh a screen memory a screen memory right sure, sure. so uh you know, it's it's interesting. Charles Fontaine also had uh, unusual experience nine days before his encounter. Uh, he had experience in a cemetery where he uh, went there with his father and they were doing a family tree uh, recording of uh, the uh, family and he was uh, the history of the family. And there was a number of people who were buried in that particular cemetery, not too far from where he lived and uh first he went was taking notes on the different gravestones and it was real windy and cold and he went back to get his camera to start taking pictures of the gravestones and his father had moved off somewhere else and he was standing in front of this gravestone of a family member who had died uh and been buried i think it was just a month ago that uh, month earlier a month earlier that uh the uh, man had been buried and it was a situation where he and his father hadn't gone to the funeral because there was a family feud going on that had been going on apparently for decades. And it was a business related thing and there was money involved. And so he wasn't talking to that side of the family, but, uh, and his father felt very bad about not, you know, seeing his brother and going to his funeral. And, uh, as Charles was taking this photo of that, uh, that gravestone, his father somewhere else, in the cemetery heard this voice say get your son away from that grave uh that grave and so he he shouted he yelled into the wind uh calling him saying get away from there get away from there and charles heard this and so he moved away but oddly enough he couldn't find his father in this uh it wasn't very uh big cemetery at all but he couldn't find his father for a while then he then he found him and his father told him what happened so they they left and uh a couple hours later charles had to take his daughter to her uh, driver to her job en route to the the job he suddenly feels wetness in his pants and pulls into a gas station. He feels very embarrassed. He thinks he's peed in his pants. He runs into the restroom, opens his pants, and it's worse than that. His pants are full of blood. And so he's like in shock. And uh, he, he ends up uh, going to an emergency room and uh, eventually making an appointment for uh, colonoscopy. colonoscopy. And the colonoscopy took place on the very morning of the abduction experience. So oh my word! Okay, work. I didn't realize that. Okay, that's a, that's an interesting detail. Yeah, yeah, it is. He went to work, arrived on time, and uh, is sitting in shock. 
from his experience. And then within an hour, I think he had to go to the doctor and have this colonoscopy. And it turned out totally negative. The doctor had no understanding of where all this blood came from. So that was interesting experience. And of course, you know, the history of uh, UFO abductions and what happens sometimes um, that there could be a link there. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, oh, this is so fascinating. That's, I think that's, this is why this, that Charles Fontaine story is so, I guess in a way so perfect as a framework because it does incorporate all these very um, divergent elements. And, and then, I mean, you, you said, you know, there's probably something that has to do with the, the UFO phenomena and uh, the realm of the dead. I mean, you're right. It, it, Charles story does encompass a lot of different elements and yet the actual experience was brief. You know, so this is another thing that's so puzzling about all this stuff. But but yet in the aftermath, he felt haunted. He felt there was some entity in the house, and he felt this presence for several weeks. And this is the reason why... He's he, carrying holy water. Yeah, he eventually got holy water and uh, gave, put it in vials, and they sprinkled around the four corners of the the house and the rooms and the, the property, the property and the dog even. And they all started, uh, Charles, his wife and daughter all started carrying little vials of holy water around for at least a year. Uh, then he sent, he sent it to us, uh, a vial. And that's what we took to the psychometrist. Now, now the, the holy water, did, did he find a benefit from that? Did things improve? Well, he was, he's Catholic. So I think, you know, holy water is a really powerful symbol for Catholics. Sure, yeah. yeah but no, what did he, did, did he say that, oh, the holy water worked or did, were, were... I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, there was, yes, at a certain point, he felt that he was no longer under, under this uh, sense of being haunted. It vanished. Uh, and so... He, but he went for weeks and weeks with this feeling of being literally under attack that uh, he wasn't, he, it was dangerous to go to sleep. He would, didn't know what was going to happen, whether he's going to be abducted again. Uh, and he, he told me one story when he went to a hypnotist. The hypnotist was terrible. He had the date wrong, uh, the time wrong, and the information wrong about his experience so he couldn't he didn't really go into a hypnotic state because he was just thinking of all the things that were wrong about what she was saying and then there was noise from the uh the cars and the honking and the street outside <laughs> so but he what he said to me was at least for a while i was able to close my eyes and feel safe and protected because there was another person with me <laughs> oh that's there, a, that's there. horribly sad that that just to hear that yeah yeah uh, yeah, this is, is so. Th- what your book covers very well, I think, is this that overlapping of these other phenomena. Um, you know, whether that be the psychic, there's there's uh, some occult issues. The fellow that uh, uh, was the husband of the of the woman who had interacted with Bud Hopkins. You know, this that odd oh, thing. Uh. And then there's a woman, Jennifer, who said um, at one point in the book, and I wrote this down, that um, she had been having experiences, and she said her father was part of the government psychic spying program. Yeah, I asked her for more details on that, and she never provided any, but I thought that was, I I think there's a whole other 
element there. Fun uh, military base or military bases. And, and she's married to a service guy now, so they live on a base. Uh, and she sees this connection with the military being very strong. And so did uh, Connie Cannon, another one of our uh, one of the main people, the four main people that we write about in the book. And Connie was one of them. And she had a dramatic experience on a uh, base. What's the name of that base? In, uh, um, Warner Robins. Warner Robins uh, Air Force Base, where she's driving a car, moving uh to from I think from Atlanta to St. Augustine, Florida. On I-75 in the oh, interstate. Anyway, she was driving like a Regency Oldsmobile sedan with a V8 engine, so a really big, powerful car. And she and her youngest son were in that car and they were following the moving van that her husband and other two sons were in. And suddenly she wasn't on I-75 anymore. Um, she found herself on this grid of roads that had nothing on them, no buildings. No, nothing. And then the next thing she knows, she and her son are on their knees on a tarmac, sobbing hysterically, while several military men are holding guns to their heads, and there are graves, three graves behind them. And overhead, there's some craft uh, flying around with helicopters. Helicopter and uh, the disc-shaped craft hovering above. Right. And then... This one guy threatened her, this one military guy, if you ever, blank, 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 you'll never see your family again. Well, she didn't, she was really confused about what she, what, what was he talking about, you know? Why would the military be so concerned about what she might or might not do? Oh, she was also hysterical. So suddenly she and John are back in their car. She doesn't have any memory of getting back into it. They're driving on the same grid of roads again. And she finally reaches what she thought was a convenience store, but they, you don't have convenience stores on bases. You have commissaries, not places that sell cigarettes and beer and lotto tickets. So anyway, she goes inside and she tells the clerk that she had gotten lost off I-75 and how, and you know, how could she get back on the interstate? And that's when the clerk said, Oh, you're on Warner Robins air force base and you have to leave the same way you got in. And Connie said, well, I, I didn't, I didn't come in through her gate. Finally, she, she somehow got out of there by following whatever directions this woman gave her. And finally, three hours later, I guess it was three hours later, she, she pulls in three hours after her husband and two sons had pulled into their new home in St. Augustine. And she and her son were just too out of it to even explain what they'd experienced. They didn't know what they'd experienced. Yeah, yeah, it's the the military overlapping with this phenomena is is something that leaves me completely perplexed because on you know is it you know is it a projection or screen, screen memory, memory? I mean, what screen, is it? You know, yeah, it, it. I mean, she she ended up eighteen miles off the interstate. That that's how far Warner Robins is from I seventy five, and she's in this big sedan. You know, I mean, what. What's that really about? You know, it is what perplexes me about all this is, is what does it tell us about the nature of reality? None of us know. And also this link between humans and aliens and involved with abductions uh, comes up over and over again. Uh, Connie had another experience where there's 
uh, a former astronaut is in a, a craft with her, and it was somebody that she knew from work she had done earlier. And so in very dreamlike situation, yet she felt it very real that uh, it wasn't a dream at all that she had ex experienced this. Um, and uh, Whitley Strieber, when he received these implants, he said it was humans that uh, a human that put those implants in him, not a not an alien. So it's it's very fascinating about uh, all these connections. Whether was it was it uh, actually a gray that had uh, shape shifted into the form of a human, and if uh, if they can do that, are they walking among us too? I mean, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, fascinating. Exactly. And, or, you know, there's all these elements of, you know, the hybridization program, you know, right. could it yeah. be, you know, what you're seeing there is, or, you know, you know, is it a hybrid that, that has just, you know, been genetically perfected in a way that, that is, that makes that, that one being indistinguishable from a normal human or, and I've also heard this is that, you know, oftentimes the, the UFO occupants are described as being completely human. They don't have any differences at all. They could just completely walk down the street and and um, and not be any different from us in the slightest. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's in in uh, the the military con the overlapping is reported very consistently, and I don't quite know what to think of it. You know, is it is it the is it actually the military? Or is it some? Uh, Richard Dolan coined the term uh, "the breakaway civilization." Is yeah, it some the breakaway group? <laughs> yeah, some black budget, uh, yeah. uh, freelance, uh, you know, off the government books uh, uh, program that has taken over the, this kind of UFO research from right. the, you know, from the Air Force. Let's say, uh, okay. you know, I don't have any answers to any of this, but. Uh, what are the men in black? Uh, they they seem to be like hybrid type creatures themselves. They often don't seem to act uh, like normal humans. And uh, I remember reading about one who was handed a ballpoint pen and he was examining it like as if he had never seen a ballpoint pen before. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. There's a funny story of a, of a men in black and I can't remember where I read this, but it, uh, where he, where they, the person there, they came to the home and, and the, the, the woman, offered them some jello and, and they had never seen jello before so they were all very fascinated by this you know bowl of jello wow that's interesting because we had a synchronicity from a ufo researcher that involved jello too remember no it was that was sorry that was marshmallow so uh <laughs> can't remember what the details were on the synchronicity but i just remember that fact that strange fact of um being served marshmallows and wine. Now, um, you at one point, oh, both of you worked for uh, Omni Magazine. Yeah, back in the eighties. Yeah, and then, freelancers. Yes, yeah. and through that you met Bud Hopkins. Right. Now, this, and Hill. And and okay, and Betty Hill. Um, now, this this is I'm just going to retell something that that happened during our last uh, interview. We did an interview about a year and a half ago where we talked about um, the seven secrets of synchronicity, that book. And um, in the middle of that conversation out of the blue, you mentioned that you had met Bud Hopkins and spent some time with him. And you, didn't you, you drove him to a. Right. To a, yeah, to we, a hypnosis session. Yeah. Yeah. He had uh, been on, on 
the radio and with the Miami station and talking about UFO abductions. And there was a call in from a woman in Lake Worth, Florida, which was about, we were, the, the conference we were at was in South Florida in Broward County in Hollywood, Florida. And so it was about 50 miles to the north and he needed a ride to, uh, to meet this woman because he felt from their brief conversation that she, she had a real uh, UFO encounter and she, she was very nervous about uh, what she was hearing on the radio, but she, and she had to contact him. So uh, he, Bud had taken a taxi from the airport to the conference, didn't have any ride. So uh, we just volunteered to take him up there. So that's how we met him. And uh, he was very suspicious of us. Yeah, he was very suspicious of us. He thought, <laughs> at first, yeah, at first he thought we were like government agents in, uh, <laughs> in disguise or something, you know, because uh, he, you know, he was uh, just real suspicious how we suddenly came into his life, his life and were suddenly driving him up <laughs> to see this uh, abduction. And, uh, and did so, you also take him to the radio station to do the radio interview? No, no. Okay. He, I think he did it. Maybe he did it on the telephone. Okay, from his, from his room, possibly. Uh, he didn't. Uh, I don't think he went down down to Miami for the uh, for the interview. But so we we took him and uh, had a uh, uh, unusual evening with this <laughs> couple. Uh, and she, uh, Bud, hypnotized her, and she went through this whole scenario of what happened to her. How she was just lifted out of her bed, floated down the hall, and then right through the wall and out into her backyard. This was our, this was another alien in the backyard story, actually, from the book. And there was like a, uh, a tube of light, like a, uh, an elevator light, uh, that she was with these three grays. And it seems to be oftentimes there's three of them uh, in these abductions. They stepped into this tube and floated upward toward this craft and on the way looking down and where she was living was very close to the old headquarters of the National Enquirer, which back in this era, uh, in the eighties, the National Enquirer was one of the only publications that was writing about, uh, UFO writing UFO stories. And it was notorious for, uh, for this is before they got into the, uh, wholeheartedly into the celebrity thing. And so, and they also used to put up a sixty-foot tree. Yeah, this Christmas was tree. this was a, a Christmas time, and they had big, dis- uh, huge Christmas tree and a big display with a little train and all kinds of uh, 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 displays uh, on their property. There, they had a like a five-acre property, and so she points out the Christmas tree and all the lights to the aliens. <laughs> and I remember Bud asking them, "What did they think?" And she says, in you know, this kind of monotone, they aren't impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, so to to make things even stranger, there's a book by, I think the author's name is Terry Hansen. And I'm not sure if the the book is called Missing Times. Uh, But he wrote a book about the... um, the uh, development or whatever would you call it, the uh, the creation of the National Enquirer. And he... um, puts forth an argument that it was created as part of a CIA disinformation program really? to, to, oh. yes, it's quite a good book. And he said, he's a great um, researcher. And, uh, 
I've actually never read the book. I should be careful what I say. It's it's uh, I've read excerpts of it, and I've been fascinated, and I've listened to him. I've actually met him very briefly, and I've listened to him talk, and he's been interviewed. Yeah, very, very interesting take on the development well, you know, of... We, we live two houses down from a woman who worked at the National Enquirer, and she actually, over the years, we would query them with something when we were doing freelancing, and she said, oh, I remember reading your queries, you know? about, oh, how about this UFO story or that UFO story? And then for years, my parents lived across the canal from uh, Hope, who was the guy who started the National Enquirer in Boca. Mm-hmm. He initially, well, anyway, that's an aside. That's a weird little sinker. I don't know where that was going. <laughs> no, no, it makes, but it's, it's uh, so, yeah, it's just very funny that, that, that they would actually in, uh, fly over the, uh, that that location oh that is very funny yeah and then now the, there's a weird occult aspect to this where the husband of this woman um didn't he he's was dabbling in the dark arts so right. yeah so uh, so along that with was very strange he's completely dressed in black and he has this gold medallion that is not a medallion but it's a uh a, a, uh, a devil's head uh satanic uh gold Devil's head. Yeah, devil's head are hanging around his neck. And so I took him, you know, as I was I was talking to him on the side while Trish and Bud were talking to the woman. And I said, uh, I asked him about it. And he said he was a former Baptist minister who had switched sides. And uh, now he was a, a Satanist. And so I, I started thinking, well, what does this have to do with this whole scenario? There, there's got to be some kind of connection in all of that. But interestingly, Bud paid no attention to this aspect of it mm-hmm. at all. He was totally focused on the alien scenario and the, the abduction. abduction. And uh, he didn't, uh, it, it didn't seem to uh, connect. Uh, he didn't seem to connect with that element at all. That was, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the room to me. <laughs> and, uh, and we were just glad to get out of there. He was staying over there overnight, overnight with those people. And we, we were, we were glad that, I don't know how he got to the airport from there. But I don't we, either. We just left him there, but we were glad we didn't stay there. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, he eventually did get back. Cause I did, you know, he eventually yeah, made it back to did, New yeah, York. Yeah, so. he, did, he did get back. <laughs> um, I saw him the next day because the conference the wasn't over yet. Okay. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. So, oh, so he must've gotten a ride back somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is, I agree, this is, like, to ignore these details, um, you know, you're doing a disservice to the overall strangeness of the phenomena by trying to put it in a little box, you know, like. Yeah, exactly. And right. and uh, here, I'll tell you, this is a short story that, that uh, I, um, uh, I have experienced this odd displacement sensation a few times in my life, and it's all, each time it's related to, uh, some sort of unusual event, um, including actually seeing uh, aliens in my backyard at one point. Actually, it would have been the front yard, technically. Uh, now, this sensation, this feeling is is a little bit hard to define. You know, so how, do you, how do you define a mood, right? But it, it felt weirdly quiet, um, like 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 strangely like a wide angle you know how when like in the 60s when they wanted to do a little like someone had taken lsd in a movie and they wanted to recreate the lsd thing they would just put on the super wide angle lens and then kind of it had that kind of feel to it so it was a little bit dreamlike um but 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 not a dream 
mm-hmm. um, dreamlike, I guess is a, is a fair way to assess it, but that, but I'm not implying that it was a dream. Uh, and it had a very distinct kind of altered reality sense to it. So um, I've been asking around other people who've had this experience and like, have you ever experienced that? And, and, and I ask it at UFO conferences and I got in a conversation with this woman and I asked her if she'd ever experienced it. And she said, yes, I had. And um, she told a story where, and she, she had had uh, lots of uh, experiences in her life, literally seeing little gray beings in her bedroom. Um, but she told one story where she, she went to her backyard and she, there was a pecan tree so she picked some pecans and she was going to take them back into the kitchen and she turned around and started to walk away from the tree. But then she turned around to face the tree and, uh, and she said she felt that, that exact odd distorted sensation that I had been describing. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing she knows, she's sitting in the kitchen and some hours have gone by and she oh. doesn't know how, she doesn't know what happened. Oh, that's weird. Yes. Yeah, so now the question I asked her, which I'm glad I asked her, was, you know, what? why did you turn around to face the tree again? And she said, oh, the reason I turned around to face the tree was because I wanted to thank the tree for giving me the pecans. Oh, interesting. Now, that one little small detail, like, adds... Uh, like a different, a, a sort of more mystical depth right. to the overall story. Right. Hmm. And so I, I just, as I immerse myself into this and dig deeper, I don't know whether I call myself a researcher sometimes, I don't know whether that's true or not, but, but I, um, but I just find that it's really important to, to not ignore these details, like these little peripheral things that would be so easy to dismiss, you know, the husband with the devil, uh, right. with the devil necklace living in the house of the woman who's having these anomalous experiences that, that to me there, I don't know what the connection is, but my very real sense is that there is a connection as if um, through, I'm assuming the way you say it, he's, he would probably be performing some sort of ritual that may be nothing more than, you know, lighting a candle or something, but that ritual may have opened a doorway or ushered in these, these experiences in a way that, that I guess we could only speculate and guess what, what had happened. At the very minimum, it just shows how the whole aspect of high strangeness is often involved in these uh, encounters. (laughs) I mean, we had a weird experience, Mike, where Rob and Bruce were going to be on the History Channel. So we flew to the island of Andros, where Bruce's trip had actually started. And they were, the History Channel was going to, for UFO hunters, they were going to film them. Okay, so we wanted to get on to the base, which is called Autec, because it's often linked with, it's called the underwater area of 51 or 52. And... The, the UFO hunter guys, we, we went to the base. They wouldn't let us on. And they had written to the Autech people, like, for months, requesting an interview with the commander of the base and a tour. So, okay, we had some strange experiences there. But then we fly back to the States. Four months later, Rob and I are in Sarasota, Florida, helping our daughter move into her dorm for her second or third year of college. And so we decided that and I were going to kick back and go to a bar and listen to some music. And it was a really neat out, outdoor place. And they had some 60s music on. But it was jammed. It was a Friday night. And the only seats we could find were at a high-top table with another couple. So we asked, do you mind if we sit with you? No, they didn't care. It turned out the man was the former commander of Autech. Now, 
What are the odds? Yeah, he had just retired. He just he, retired. He, he was, was the, there. He was there. He was the commander. He was the one who wasn't responding to. He, they didn't. They didn't reject the uh, History Channel's uh, request for an interview. They just didn't respond at all. And that's what they typically do because it's uh, uh, it's a closed base. It's uh, and even if you could get onto the base, and some people can get onto the base if you know somebody who works there. But even then, you just you just get a basic tour. Basic tour that doesn't really show you anything uh, of any depth of what's going on there. And uh, so it was very interesting just to sit there. He's drinking these martinis <laughs> with his girlfriend and saying, "Oh, you got to try this martini. This is great." And <laughs> and uh, we're talking UFOs with him, and he's uh, he uh, he's he's and he's fascinated by uh, the whole our whole trip there and our experience there, and he's really listening, but. Then uh, we say, well, well, "Tell us what, about the about the UFOs." And he said, "There's no U, nothing related to UFOs on uh, this base. This is about uh, the uh, uh, the underwater testing and evaluation yeah, of, of weapons." Right, exactly. Uh, basically, torpedoes. They're testing <laughs> torpedoes. And when was the last time uh, the United States fired a torpedo in an act of war? It was. Uh, we checked on that. It's the Korean War. So they're spending millions and millions of dollars every year uh, on some aspect of uh, the military that hasn't taken place for like 70 years. And uh, so, you know, there's there's other things, obviously, under other things going on. There's some kind of <clears throat> sonar work they're doing. And uh, but, but just being, you know, the, the synchronicity that we just happen to... <laughs> walk into this bar and the guy at the table, the only table that's left <laughs> is Commander Richard. <laughs> right. And so they could also be uh, having something to do with uh, USOs uh, rather than UFOs, uh, unidentified submerged submerged objects. So, uh, and we did uh, come up with some stories for the book of a couple of civilian people who worked for Autech and had experiences related to both UFOs and these uh, underwater, USOs. Uh, USOs, underwater objects. Oh, were those in the book? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. I'm just drawing a blank right now on that, that, that particular part. Um, yeah. So, uh, wow. It, so my, my, I mean, there's, I've read a lot of books on synchronicity. I've dug into it a lot, uh, you know, and, and it's hard to come up with a, with a answer to, to how to, integrate that my only um you know one is just to pay attention mm -hmm. and then the other this is if there's a fellow who wrote a book called um oh i think you were actually you you had a chapter and you may have called um uh the sync book oh yeah Alan right. Green. yes we did yeah and uh so he has a nice way of putting it he says the synchronicities are like um using a compass on the open water right so if you're on a boat on the uh, out in the middle right. of the ocean it's cloudy and you can't see the sun um you depend on the compass to 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 tell you how to travel. And so that in a way is how I've been looking at synchronicities. Uh, I think that's an excellent way to look at them. Yeah. I and, mean, that's basically how we decide what to write, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And it, yeah, it, I mean, it, it's the, the very personal story that emerges from this book, you know, you tell some of, you know, you, there's a, there's a, you're, you're, you're both in it as far as, you know, your characters in the story um, and your, your own, uh, how do you say it? Your, your own detective work is 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 that's the meat of the of the book in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. 
hadn't thought of that that way, but it's yeah. yeah we, we try to make it personal and uh, very accessible for for readers. Uh, that was and uh, that, I don't like reading books where there's a lot of research in that, but you don't don't really get the the feel for the the author himself or herself or what what their ex- own experiences are. You know, they they keep themselves in the background, and I think it's imp- important for the reader to know where the the writers are coming from. Exactly. Yeah. That was part of what made communion so compelling. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of books and I've got, Oh God, I've got a lot of them on my bookshelves here surrounding me from where I'm sitting here and uh, where they are written by, you know, a first person, you know, first person abductee is writing the book. And um, oftentimes the writing, you know, they're, they're, they're not very skilled writers. They're not very engaging writers, but they're writing from such a place of passion that, um, that the book ends up being very engrossing. You know, you can right. really get absorbed in these books, even though, you know, they're, they're, they're not very skillfully written. That said, you know, Whitley is one of the, one of the examples of a very well-written book on a first person experience. And there aren't many. Oh, he's, he's an extraordinary writer. And I think that's, that's really what, what made communion. Yes. And it's interesting. Cause on one level, I also think that's what makes Whitley in a way, such an easy target for people who want to dismiss him. Yep, I think so too. Because, yeah, because he was a fiction writer before he wrote Communion. Yes, and the stories come across as, I mean, they're so elegantly written, you know, that they, they don't come across as, you know, in essence, witness testimony, you know, sort of the, the way like a, a roughly written book was. And I also want to say that your book is, I, I, it's, you're both professional writers. You've got a long, long list of books that you've written. And, um, I think that really helped. It was really great. I really was, you're, it's a very sparse book in the sense it's not very thick um, and sparse in the sense that, you know, like it doesn't seem like there's, there's much fluff in there. And, uh, and, you know, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. Well, yeah. good. Yeah. We enjoyed writing this book. We had a lot of weird synchronicities, like we were saying, connected with this book. And what about afterwards? After the publication has, the synchronicities continued i, I oh, mean because i some yes. of the, the more resonant posts that i've done online um like i know that i've i'm onto something when when there's like follow-up synchronicities connected to those posts mm-hmm. yeah no i mean we, we've had a number of synchronicities happen in the aftermath of this publication one, one of we, we've been trying to come up with an idea not, not an idea but but a hook for a second book the front and yard, aliens we in the think front we yard. We may be there. We're not sure yet. <laughs> we have uh, to follow the synchros. Yeah. Hey, so there's one story that kind of gets in a curious way tied back to me is um, uh, Charles Fontaine saw a, a strange bald man in a grocery store parking lot. Right. Right. And then I, I got an email from you. This would have been sometime last year, where uh, where he had obviously connected with you and said, like, I saw a picture of the guy that I saw in the parking lot. And, and I saw it on this blog called hidden experience. There's a picture of the same guy. And uh, I'm not sure if whether it was, which one of you sent it to me. uh, But the picture is very interesting because the the picture is of a researcher, author and researcher named Mac Tony's. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And he died in 2009 uh, at, at the age of 34, tragically. And, uh, I was actually pretty close with him. him. Him and I were were we had never met, but we would talk on the phone a lot, and we exchanged a million emails 
Um, so I met him in 2007 and then, and then, so I knew him less than right around two years. So, uh, it really crushed me when, when I got the news of his death, but, um, the, the description that Charles gives of this, of this man in the parking lot is, does not match the personality of Mac at all. Uh, Mac was as sweet and soft-spoken as he could possibly be. And, uh, you know, so there's a very eerie story. Oh, could you just tell that story of the, the events in the grocery store parking lot? Yeah, it, uh, what about a year? Yeah, this was, uh, some months after his, uh, maybe more, uh, more, actually more than a year after his encounter, he was, uh, he had been, uh, shopping in the supermarket and he parked behind it and he was sitting in his car looking through the receipt for looking for something <clears throat> when he noticed uh, through the rearview mirror this uh, figure coming in his direction, this man who is dressed very oddly in like tight pants that look like the kind that baseball players wear or wore that were kind of high in the, uh, about up to the mid calves striped and he had very, very skinny ankles, uh, kind of a large head, and he was walking like an insect, is how he described it, or uh, or a, a character, uh, an insect in a cartoon. Just uh, his legs lifting up high on either side as he is moving forward, and he is carrying probably twenty-five or so, a couple dozen uh, bags for groceries you know the kind you you use over and over again and if he is so uh one of the things that didn't make sense to charles is, is if this guy is going grocery shopping there's no way he was going to be able to fill those bags and carry those bags home uh and so the the whole situation was uh filled with high strangeness right from the start and the uh the man comes around the side. He, he he first thinks this must be somebody who is handicapped, handicapped mentally retarded. Uh, the man comes around the side of the vehicle, and he's uh, Charles starts to get a bit worried uh, what's about what's going on, with, uh, and starts the engine. And the man goes to the front, and uh, so he doesn't want to. Uh, frighten him, but he wants to get out of there. And so he starts moving slowly forward. And then the man comes right towards him and it starts making all these noises. He's talking to him, but in the strangest language, he has no idea what language it was. And it was just very high pitched sounds he was making. And uh, so, so he had no idea what was going on. And then he starts moving forward and finally gets away from him. And when he looks in the rearview mirror, the man is still back there yelling at him and uh, is just very, very odd, odd experience. Uh, and, you know, at first, like I said, he thought it was somebody who was mentally retarded, but then he thought more about it and he thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being paranoid, but it, 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 maybe it's one of these hybrid uh, individuals. Yeah, so one more in a series of stories. I mean, like you know, it's a book about UFOs where there's no UFOs in the story, yeah. um, you know, which is which is something that gets overlooked in the in the overall research. I think. 
Yeah, I think you're right. You know, people are so like, you know, MUFON is so interested in little lights in the sky, you know, and then, you know, if you shared that story with a MUFON investigator, I don't know if that would, they would even have a way to put it in their overall reporting. Well, see, I, I think MUFON, you know, they're like the cream at the top of the milk before, you know, and this whole phenomena is just, it's, it's so much more complex and layered and subtle. It's to- just... I mean, what what Cheryl saw in the field behind the house, the farmer's field, uh, at three o'clock in the morning, were nine lights uh, that looked like inverted ice cream cones that were going up to some something above that he couldn't see what it was, and there was energy inside these lights, a swirling energy that was moving up from the earth upwards to this uh, unseen, this dark object. And so he watched it for two or three minutes. And then he said, I have to get my wife out here to see this. So he wakes her up and she comes out and she sees it. And that's when she says, this is what I saw two weeks ago. And then Charles is distracted, looks over to his right. And then that's when he sees this, uh, something different. This uh, object that has this band of lights uh, circling around it. And it's vertical. It's like a, a disc-shaped uh, UFO, but it's vertical rather than horizontal, coming between his weeping willow tree and his house coming towards him. And that, then, like I said, that's the last he remembers. He goes to pick up the dog, and he's in, in his shower, and his wife uh, is back in bed. And her, her recollection is feeling as if she weighed 500 pounds and being floated through the air and sinking deeply into the mattress, and the mattress just wrapping around her and falling into a deep sleep. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm continually amazed at the strangeness of all of this. Yeah. Um, And then there's a question of, is it, are these experiences good, evil? Uh, Are they beneficial or are they? Are they spiritually transformative? Yeah. uh, (laughs) One of the things in doing these interviews, radio interviews and talking with different people is we've come across this, these people who are very interested in disclosure and oftentimes the people who are interested in disclosure have a very uh have a view of the whole phenomena as being very beneficial for the people who have had these experiences the experiencers are one such group and we asked well i said what about Charles Fontaine, he, he, he's, he's not a happy, happy camper. He did not like his experience, and he, was, he felt terrorized. And how could they be beneficial? And the answer was, well, it's, 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 it's personal. Do you see the, the cup half full or the cup half empty? But, but it's got to, there's got to be that, – that's just too facile. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I agree that. I, I, I hear that a lot, and I don't like that, that – you know, like it's basically like the 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 personal the, the person's own uh, mindset is right. is thus coloring or framing the experience, you know, yeah. as something beautiful or something terrifying. Because um, I've heard both ends of the spectrum. I've heard some stories where people tell these beautiful, loving, angelic experiences, and then um, and and with- it's too simplistic to say it's just the mindset of the experiencer right. Right. that's yeah. frame, that's coloring but- it. The people that we focus on that have had multiple experiences, two in particular, Connie Cannon and Diane Fine, Diane Fine uh, both of them have had 
contact with a variation of, of various beings. And some of them have been very beneficial and angelic-like and, and healing. healing uh, and, and others have been very, very terrifying. So what we think is that there is a, there are a variety of beings here, that, uh, not just, it's not monolithic, it's not monolithic good or monolithic bad, but, but uh, some variety. And then the people who, who say that it's all beneficial say, well, if it was really negative, they would have destroyed the earth, taken over the earth by now because they're so advanced. Why haven't they done that? And you could respond, maybe they have. <laughs> you could well, you could respond to that by saying, "Well, there's these other beings here who may be countering them. There may be a whole uh, different scenario going on that, uh, like like a like a war at a higher level of uh, of existence, like a, a spiritual war that uh, is, is uh, undergoing." Uh, for the control or the uh, uh, of the planet or of the, the uh, people pr- protecting or... the planet, uh, whatever way you look at it. So it's uh, it's a uh, it's a fascinating uh, thing that's going on. But uh, we don't think it's just uh, all negative or all beneficial. That's my sense. Also, is that that it's somehow oh, it it manifests in ways that that. Um, uh, you know, that give us both. And, right. and I don't understand exactly why. Um, cause I, you know, I mean, I trust the people who've had the beautiful experiences, you know, you hear their experiences and you see how they're, you know, proceeding in life. Oftentimes the people with the very beautiful loving experiences are the ones that, you know, turn into energy healers and psychics and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, now what would be interesting is to follow. I mean, obviously I don't think you'll lose touch with Charles, but just to, I, I, my guess is that um, as time goes on, and as and hopefully he's doing some work where he can make uh, allow this to integrate in a way that's beneficial to him. Um, I would I would my guess is that as the years go by, or the months maybe if it happens quickly, you know he'll his outlook would change. He'll have a uh, uh, a more spiritual outlook because that is also one of the things that I'm seeing over and over again. It's that this. This, you know, the the trauma, the shock of the event will mm. usher in, you know, the the term spiritual awakening is as good a term as any. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure that's really happening with Charles yet. And it, you know, it it may it may not happen, but it is certainly something that I've seen as a pattern where people will say, um, you know, and one of the funny things that's happened is, you know, uh, you know, now I just see reality different. I see nature as something different. I see, you know trust universal love more than I did, you know, before. So, uh, that, that sounds all kind of candy coated and simplistic, but, but it is very much a pattern of, 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 of what goes down. Yeah. We've heard experiences where people are actually shown different scenes of the environmental destruction of, of earth, of what humans are doing to it and what will happen eventually if we continue on this path and, you know, very much of an environmental scenario. And, uh, you know, uh, is that really what the, what their, their message is to us? I mean, that, that's seems to be one message that, uh, 
has has that been, crops up that crops up and it has been for actually for decades uh, appearing. Yes, as well as nuclear proliferation shows up right. also, and they and, often appear at nuclear uh, nuclear facilities as well. Uh, the sightings, actually, sure, and yeah, and and uh, you know, one of the things that is interesting because those uh, discussions of you know when people share the story of you know seeing, they'll often be they'll talk about like they'll see it as a movie, like basically here, look at the screen, and then they'll show a movie of environmental degradation and you know global catastrophes related to uh the ecosystem in upheaval and but what they'll say is that it's more than a movie it's almost like they're drawn in and they can smell and they can see it's like a virtual reality movie that just sucks them in and then when the movie's over the the ufo occupants are in a way monitoring their reaction so it almost seems like you know, on one level is like, you know, they want to see our reaction to, to scenes of global destruction in a way like, like, you know, how can these people be in such denial is, is kind of the way I'm getting it. You know, like what, like a psychologist would do a test and, um, uh, you know, look for, you know, show scenes purposely, uh, that would purposely, um, create a, a reaction and then try to try to monitor that reaction and try to test that reaction or try to make note of that reaction. Yeah, in uh, most of of these abductions, uh, not only are there usually three gray entities involved, but then there's a a taller, more slender being that seems to be controlling the the whole scenario who is often inside the craft. And one of the things this being does at certain points is moving in very close to the person's personal space with their head right next to their head, like they're looking inside the person. And we've heard this description over and over. And Connie Cannon just is just uh, has had that experience and is just uh, mortified by it, by it and reacts very negatively by with the sense of that, this like an invasion of their head. Yeah. Being really invaded. Yes, and I've actually heard where people will say they'll like use the computer analogy, and they'll feel like their, you know, their their hard drive is being downloaded into the right. into the uh, to the mind of the of the alien. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of a scary prospect. <laughs> oh, it's totally terrifying, and it's totally. I mean, it's totally terrifying as well as. Um, obviously, it's fascinating. You know, so you know what is going on. I don't have any answers and and i'm i'm glad that you didn't come up with any answers in your book no, we don't have you, any answers either if, i if mean you, uh that's the that's the thing is anybody who you know says they're a ufo ufologist or research ufo researcher now that's fine but uh I if, they, if they say we know they say we know the truth yeah then that, you know they don't yeah exactly we've had call-ins where people say that they have they have the answers and Immediately, my thought is, well, that means they don't have the answers that they say they do. I mean, I don't think any of us have have the answers of what this is about uh, yet. Uh, it's a it's a mystifying phenomena. It's the uh, most interesting phenomena and the most possibly world altering phenomena right. that exists, and yet uh, it's ignored by the government and the media. And most people uh, still think of uh, 
anybody who believes in UFOs as uh, being a uh, little little bit off the rocker and the whole thing is uh, laughable. So it's it's and there there's a whole level of disinformation going on by the government as well. So it's the whole interesting process. But yet we're very aware the government being interested in this subject we, because we've kept track of the different uh, uh, intelligence agencies that have come to our blog and looked at specifically at Charles' story. One of them, in fact, uh, spending eight hours on our that blog. That was the Royal Mounted, the Royal, Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police. Police. Yeah. Now, then the question is, what kind of investigations are they doing? And uh, I don't have any hard evidence of this, but I have sort of an intuitive sense of what it's about in that <clears throat> I think there's competition among these different intelligence agencies to try to figure out what it exactly is going on. And that each one may have a little bit of information and they wanna find out what the other one has. And as you mentioned earlier, the the source of the information of the, the people who, who have the knowledge of what has been going on has probably been outsourced. And maybe it's been outsourced for maybe 30, 40 years at least. And that there's some non-governmental group involved. And most of the people in government, when they say they don't know what's going on, like presidents and uh, people of in the head of the CIA, they're probably correct that they don't know what's going on. Maybe they did at one time in the past, but uh, the people now uh, probably don't uh, have that much knowledge more than the average person, but there, there are people out there that, uh, that do know uh, more than the rest of us. That's my assessment. And that's as good of, I mean, you know, that's my sense too. And now it's same thing. It's like a sort of a, you know, a gut, uh, feeling just the way that everything seems to be outsourced at this point. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and, um, and then it would, you know, if there was involved in the government, then, you know, a c congressman could just say like, well, you know, let's have a congressional investigation. We'll have congressional oversight and we'll just, you know, subpoena these people. And so if they're outside the bounds of the government, the, you can't bring them in front of a, of a, you know, congressional a, committee. exactly. Uh, Hey, we've been at it for well, it's actually two hours now uh, since wow. I gave you a call. Um, how are you holding? It's been fun, Mike. Good, good. Yeah. So, um, uh, I think I've we have got to every question on the on the checklist here, um, except for a couple, and I think those are pretty well covered in some of your other interviews. Uh, so, uh, what I'll do is I'll make sure to put uh, some links to the other interviews we talked a little bit before the uh, the microphones got switched on. So I'll connect those. Um, in a link format on the show notes. And then, so if people want to hear more, they can listen to those interviews. And if they want to uh, get the book here, can you do a little plug and how, how you would go about getting the book? Uh, Amazon. <laughs> Great. That's, that's the place to get the, the book, amazon.com. Now what I'll also add that what I did is I got an, an audio version off of audible. Dot com. Oh, right. And it was great. I actually, I work at the desk doing illustrations and such. So uh, it was great for me just to be able to sit here and, and listen to it. And whoever read it, I thought did a beautiful job. Yes, he's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, also, we've just come to our blog now. There's all kinds of links there to where to buy the book. That's yeah, www.synchrosecrets.com forward slash 
Synchro Secrets. Or you can just go to synchrosecrets.com and then from there you can uh, click on to the blog. That's the first one is the website, then the blog. Okay, and I'll, I'll make sure to have show notes or uh, links on the show notes. I go to that site a lot and I find it that, um, man, there's you, you pick, you grab some real gems in that, in that <laughs> site sometimes. We have fun with this blog. Yeah, it's perfect. It's, I mean, it's, it's because in a way, a synchronicity is a perfect little blog post, right? Because it's, you know, oftentimes they're short, but the problem is oftentimes that, you know, to really delve into the synchronicity proper, you know, takes a few hours because it's, it just, there seems to be spider webs connected all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And Hey, one more little thing before I let you go. Um, I, I'm looking at the book here and on page 107, um, I show up in the book and then I'm I'm there for about a page (laughs) and a half. And uh, yeah, it's, and it tells the story of a dream that I had before going to a UFO conference and um, the, all the odd uh, stuff associated with that. And that is actually one of those synchronicities, exactly what I just described, you know, to tell that story properly, you know, the, the spider webs are just connected to everything in that dream. Uh, you know, it'd be very easy, you know, human nature is, is one thing. It'd be very easy to dismiss that dream outright. Um, but the fact that there are so many synchronicities connected to that, you know, I, I am forced to take the implications of that dream very seriously. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that you can just, I, I think UFO dreams are really important. You know, I mean, even Jung thought that they were important. He apparently, before World War II broke out, a lot of his patients reported having UFO dreams, and he believed that it portended the breakout of World War II. And I think now we've got this proliferation of UFOs again, and I think it, portend, it may portend some type of massive paradigm shift. I liked your I liked your dream story because it in writing it it it's uh, it's just a perfect story because you're leading the reader on in one direction and then right at the end there's a twist it's almost Hitchcockian oh with uh, the with the orb you mean what's that with the orb no uh, when the they change features oh yes the, so the 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 dream culminates uh, you know, I'll put a link rather than retelling it here I'll put a link to that blog post yeah, because what I did do is I got up in the middle of the night after having the dream and recorded it which is something I've never done before I got up out of bed walked downstairs found my voice recorder climbed back up into bed and then I lay there in bed with the voice recorder and narrated the entire dream it probably takes oh. six minutes to tell the dream and then I sh- I turned the recorder off and then after turning it off, hmm you know, turn the lights off and there was a glowing blue orb hovering mm. above my bed. Uh, and, and it was, it, I watched it. I don't know how long I watched it. Not very long, maybe 20 seconds or so. And then it just sort of faded away. And then I just rolled over and went to sleep. The mm. orb was, it was almost probably within reach. I bet you if I put my arm up in the air, I could have touched it. It was that close. And it was interesting because it didn't project light. Like I sleep in a loft. So the ceiling is very low. Uh-huh. and it's right in the pitch of the roof. So if the orb was actually glowing and projecting light, it would have lit the room up, right. especially in that little corner there, but it didn't. The sort of, uh, you know, like my first reaction was like, okay, that's just a little trick of the eye. Um, and and I, I tried every conceivable way to recreate. You know how if you have a flash bulb go off right. in your face mm-hmm. and it's dark, you, you, you're left with a little image in your retina. Uh, I tried to recreate that orb every way I could with the with the the bedside lamp with the clock. And even there's a little red dot on the, when the voice recorder is on, I tried to stare at that for a little bit and then move my eye away in the dark room and see if I could create the orb. And I couldn't. So I, I have to conclude that there was some sort of anomalous orb in the room. Um, 
Then the story, then the story leads to this uh, story, daylight story of uh, related, seem, seemingly related to disclosure about how wonderful these beings are. But then it has that odd twist right at the end. Yeah. So, so in the dream, it would have been, it was almost like a, like a press conference or something like that. It was like in a town square and, you know, totally cinematic, you know, like it was staged in Hollywood backlot, you know? So um, there's like this press conference and all these people are around. It has this kind of cult leader feel to it where these people are giving this cheery, you know, happy uh, view of disclosure. And then I just, in the back of my mind, I said, well, this isn't right, you know? And it just, I feel like I'm being deceived. So I walked right up to him and it was a blonde woman. Um, it, you know what it reminded me of? It was Carrie Cassidy from Project Camelot. Huh. I don't know if you're familiar with her or not. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. She's a kind of a researcher and she's uh, plays the role of uh, sort of this tough investigator, but it was sort of her in a way that was the person I was seeing in my mind's eye in the dream. And uh, so I went up to her and then the people around her involved in the same cause. And I said, hey, like, I don't know if this is quite right. I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I'm not exactly sure what I said. I, I, it's recorded in that thing. And then, you know, it was straight out of some uh, special effect from the X-Files. Like all of a sudden her eyes got oversized and they turned completely black. And so did everyone in her group there. And, um, you know, they basically said, you know, don't tell anyone. You know, you are not allowed to share this information. That's a, wow. it's a fascinating dream. Yeah. And then, and then afterwards, uh, you know, you talk about it in the, in the text there and I'll, I'll fill it in. There's a, there's a, like, I'm literally floated into a giant tube and I grab this funny shape off of a wall. It almost looks like it's a backlit like piece of plastic. And I, and it's, I'm like, I have to remember this. I have to remember this. And it's a, like it's a W with a, with like a J kind of hooked on the end of it, you know, like a, like a hook shape at the end. And I drew it the next morning. And later, like two days later, I was in Sedona. And for some reason, again, synchronistically, we bump into this character. I was traveling with Natasha, the same woman I was talking about earlier. And we bump into this fellow, super charming guy. He's a, he's an astrologer and he's a, Kabbalist and he lives in Sedona and he's just like the perfect Sedona character mm -hmm. and he needed a ride to the UFO conference and we're like hey we're going you hop in with us so we had lunch with him that day and and I said hey listen let me you you know about symbology and stuff and he says sure and his name was Joseph Mark M-A-R-C his last name so I said I, I drew this image this this on a cocktail napkin literally this W with a hook at the end. And I said, do you have any idea what this image means? The symbol means, because I had it in a very profound dream just two nights ago. And he looked at it and he takes the cocktail napkin and he flips it upside down and he goes, well, it's my initials J M. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, you know, and then it was a you know very sweet interaction. There was no, like, I basically wanted the, you know, the clouds to part and to have like universal knowledge mm -hmm. of all that's, hidden to be imparted into my you know deepest psyche that didn't happen um you know but still that's an impressive synchro oh yeah oh yeah that one that one kind of blew my mind and uh you know the fact that and the fact that he was such a mystical character to begin with mm -hmm. you know so it was like meeting this you know sort of like uh, uh you know merlin exactly exactly <laughs> interesting hey um thanks so much well, thank you, Mike. Thank, it's thank it's you, always Mike. a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, great, great. And yeah, I was actually looking forward to this one and I wanted to, um, I have done something that I, 
I will put it out to podcasters all over the world. Never do this. Don't interview someone unless you've read their book. Yeah. Uh, I've made that mistake and it, it, it proves to be very embarrassing. So, uh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a heads up when this is online and it should be in a day or so. Okay. okay good. Pr- appreciate that. Mike. Okay. Bye now. Okay. Bye now. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in after the editing process here. Uh, I just did a little bit of back and forth emailing with Trish, and what I want to do is put a short excerpt uh, lifted from the audiobook that was read by a professional uh, reader, and it sounds great. And I just wanted to include uh, a short uh, snippet from that, just because uh, the the stories in the book are are very en- engaging and really, you know, uh, well, in a way, they're typical of the overall. How to say it? Over the overall UFO experience, uh, that meaning they are very weird. And there was one in particular I wanted to share. If uh, I get the okay from the publisher, I'll tack it on here at the end. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>